Hello and welcome to another episode of Mostly Weather. My name's Neil Robinson and today I'm joined by podcast regulars Doug McNeil. Hello. Jeff Norwood-Brown. Hello. And today we've got special guest Helen Roberts. Say hello, Helen. Hello. So lately we've been having a mini-series of podcast episodes looking at how we create a forecast. So the last two episodes we looked first of all at how we make observations that go into a weather forecast. The last episode we looked at using supercomputers to really run the forecast and this week, we're going to finish off this, uh, this mini-series by looking at how we actually tell people about the weather forecast. This is the essential bit, right? Everything else is for nothing if we don't get this bit right. So, Helen, you've got some experience with this kind of thing. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you do at the Met Office then? Yeah, sure. So um, currently I'm a senior operational meteorologist um, and specifically my job title is media advisor. So um, on a day-to-day basis, the media team here, we're talking to presenters from ITV, STV, UTV, some other broadcasters as well. Um, And we're uh, giving them graphics, briefings, scripts to enable them to then communicate the forecast to the public. And so you have a sort of a dialogue with these people about how they're getting the message of the weather forecast right. Is that the idea? Yeah. Um, So we're sort of, they're the interpreters, I guess, between us here in the Met Office and then the end user, which is generally the public. Um, And so it's potentially quite a, a complex process with um, the potential for some sort of Chinese whispers to yeah. get in if you're not careful. So we have to be very clear when we're communicating to the so, presenters. So actually, when I first started at the Met Office, I took the opportunity to shadow a weather forecaster. Have you guys done this? I've not done that yet, no. So it's worth doing. It was yeah. really interesting. And one of the interesting things that happened was we sat with the the weather forecaster. We watched the weather forecast on telly. And then this big red old-fashioned telephone uh, rang on the desk. <laughs> they picked up and went, yeah, you know, that's right, Jeff. No, that was great. You, know, you got the message just right. And put the phone back down. And it's funny that there's this instant direct feedback between the forecasters at the Met Office and the people really delivering it to the public just to make sure that message is clear, right? Yeah, and that's that still happens. Um, we've still got the big red t- telephone. <laughs> um, and yeah, we're, we're communicating constantly with the presenters, uh, watching their output. And if there's anything that needs slightly tweaking, then we can do that almost instantaneously. So that's reaching a lot of people via via broadcast, but there, there must be loads of there's loads of other um, ways that we're getting out to the public and to other people as well. Yeah, should we have there? a quick fire round of different ways that we uh, deliver? What do the they call broadcast? them? Channels? Do we call them channels? Is that is that is that what they are? I mean, not television channels, but uh, I mean platforms. platforms. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So, so we've also got an app, right? In fact, we've just released a new app, haven't we? Yeah. Which uh, which delivers the weather forecast. But but how else do we deliver the weather forecast to people then? Oh, well, I've been following on Twitter, so you can follow the Met Office on Twitter. In fact, I know we, we need to, to mention that you can follow Mostly Weather on Twitter. Yeah, we've now. got, <laughs> this is a brief aside, we've got a brand new Twitter handle. So go and follow us at MW underscore podcast. Okay, so that's the Twitter handle to get hold of the podcast. Definitely, what, and give us feedback as well. Yeah, we'd love some feedback. So what about other weather forecast channels? Well, one of the, one of the most iconic um, weather forecast that we do is the shipping forecast now i haven't shadowed a, a weather forecaster but i married one huh. and she used to do the shipping forecast oh, really? that's a very very niche uh, forecast indeed because it's very specific it's laid out you've only got certain amount of words you can use uh, and it's very very precisely monitored and and, and sort of uh, There's a lot of information in each word isn't it in, in each word yeah, yeah. and, and it, the, the can be times where you've just got to try and narrow down the words to to fit in the the, the remit as it were you know so so, so in general how do we decide on 
how risky some forecast weather is. So we've got this this system of uh, different coloured weather warnings, sort of a traffic light type thing. And how do we decide when we're predicting some weather, what colour to give it? Yeah, the uh, the warnings um, are issued on a matrix um, and it goes from yellow through to red and on either axis there's um, the risk and there's the confidence. So you might have a moderate risk, um, high confidence that that was going to happen and depending on where you're on the matrix gives you the colour of the warning that we issue. So a red red warning would be issued for something which had a really strong impact, which we were really confident about. Exactly, yes. And that's why they're they're so very rare. Mm. Um, But also the warnings are issued on impact Mm. rather than using specific thresholds. That's a relatively recent change um, and it's one that's becoming more popular across the world. Um, and a lot of people look to our warning system as one to um, really look up to. People think it's and, a and also great does, system. Does it rely on difference from the normal conditions as well? So I'm from Glasgow, and it's often much windier and colder in Glasgow than it is in, say, London. Yeah. And so is that taken into account then? It absolutely is, right. yes. So we will take into account where it is, how populated, mm. how, how, as you say, how different than normal it is. Uh, the time of year, and even very specific things like whether it's a bank holiday and therefore lots more traffic on the road, or whether there's a big outdoor event going on. All right. So we're actually modelling, really, uh, sort of not officially modelling as in our climate models, yeah. we're actually modelling beyond the weather now. We're sort of modelling society. There impact, yeah. yeah. We're modelling so, impact so and how it's going to react to the weather. There's a certain amount of sort of skill that as the forecaster to look at this situation and, and judge. There's a, an amount of judgment involved in, in what issue, what forecast warning you're going to issue, right? Yeah, there absolutely is. And, yeah. there, and that inevitably means that there's some degree of subjectiveness. Yeah. Um, but that's your job, right? Your job is to, yeah. to look at the, this very factual thing, the weather forecast, through a lens of experience, right? And, and judge how to communicate this, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So... More and more now we're, we're issuing forecasts that are what, what we've been talking about before, probabilistic forecasts that aren't so certain and deterministic. They provide a range of uncertainties. In my experience, this is a really difficult thing to communicate. So what's the latest thinking on, on how we communicate this kind of information? It's, it's really tricky. Mm. Um, Laura last week was talking about ensembles and and they give us, rather than that single deterministic answer, they give us a a range of options. So that makes our job in some ways easier, um, but in other ways, then then like you say, we've got to communicate that uncertainty and that's where things get very, very difficult indeed. Um, So there's an awful lot of research in this area and there are lots of different thoughts, but it, it, it seems to be that People are open to um, understanding uncertainty and probabilities. And also, interestingly, when you give people a deterministic forecast, people will infer their own uh, probabilities alongside that and uncertainty. So, so I heard, and maybe you can confirm this, I heard that there was an experiment run where we gave people deterministic forecasts and probabilistic forecasts and asked them to make decisions based on it and rate how confident they were. And it was a really interesting result. Have you guys heard about this? So, so what happened was when they were given the deterministic forecast, they got the answer worse than with the probabilistic forecast, but they thought they'd got it better. 
So the, the point is people are more comfortable yeah, are using comfortable. deterministic things, but actually they absorb more of the probabilistic information than maybe they realise. I mean, I think that's a really interesting result. It definitely creates a challenge for the, for the forecaster or the person communicating, but I think, I think it'll be worth it and we'll be moving more towards that, it's my it, understanding. It, it is interesting that the, the, we, the, the there seems to be some resistance, I don't know whether it's in the press or whether it's uh, the Met Office you know, moving forward, to, to give probabilistic forecasts out because they're not sure how the public will handle mm. probabilities. And then you look on the, the back pages and you've got all the odds for all the horse racing. Oh, yeah. you know, no, the public can handle this. You know, so that. I don't know if I mentioned to you guys, but I've, um, I've been to America lately. <laughs> so for, for the, listener, <laughs> for the listeners right? at home, I'm very smugly wearing my NASA T-shirt, <laughs> which I got at NASA Goddard. I, I don't know if I mentioned that. But the, the point is in America there's much more of a tradition of releasing percentage probabilities in the local I've weather forecasts. I've seen American weather forecasters use what they call the European model as well, the sort of ECMWF model, and say, oh, this is our model and this is what it says, but we've got this other model from this other centre and that doesn't... Obviously, we wouldn't recommend doing that in the UK, but uh, but they, they will look at... Uh, uh, oh, that's effectively an ensemble of two, right? But they will look at that kind of thing. So, Doug, is the is the group statistician? Have you heard about the anomalous um, probability forecast issued? So, do do you know that um, there's fewer forecasts issued at fifty fifty probability in America than should be statistically and speaking? So, this you may be. I, I haven't heard about that issue specifically, but I do know that some companies in the states issue wrong probabilities. This is what I'm talking about on purpose. Yeah. Because people maybe don't want to hear about rain, or is it the other way around? Or so, they, they overestimate rain. Is so, right? so what? Yeah. As I understand it, what it is is if you issue a forecast at fifty-fifty probability, so fifty-fifty probability of rain, it sounds like we don't, we know. don't know. It's toss yeah. of a coin. Yeah, so yeah. what they do is they massage that to be forty-sixty or sixty-forty because it's received better. But actually, as my boss pointed out, my boss is from Madrid. He says, if you forecast 50-50 probability of rain from Madrid, that's an extremely high probability high of rain. rain. Yeah, uh, so, you know, it can be yeah. precisely 50-50. And it's tempting to think of that as just toss a coin. I don't know what the answer is, but it's, it's, it's measured as 50-50, right? That, that just as an aside, that, that's almost what happened with Mount Everest when they measured that, and it came to precisely 27,000 feet. <laughs> so they added that's a few clearly feet on, erroneous. <laughs> just to make it sound more realistic. It's always a bit off-putting, isn't it? <laughs> Well, this is the idea of calibration, isn't it? If you issue a forecast with some percentage of rain, say, then over the long term, you want that proportion of times you want it to rain. So, you know, you issue a 50-50 probability, you want it to be raining half the time. That's right, because reality is deterministic, right? So, so yeah, it either rains. get one go. Yeah. yeah, it either rains or it doesn't rain in reality. So, although, yeah. although it, there's a there's a subtlety here because um, you've got time and you've got space. Mm. So, uh, you just because it's not raining outside your window doesn't mean it's not. Yeah, raining it might in be your... ra- raining in your garden or just down the road. Yeah. So, uh, how do you deal with that kind of problem? That sounds like a ch- yeah. challenge for you, Helen. And that that sort of brings us onto a, another problem we have with things like forecasting a day of sunshine and showers, um, and people's understanding of of what to expect in that scenario because like you say most people understandably when they hear a forecast want to you know expect that to happen over over their head um because that's where you are and also when they are you know it often occurs to me that my perception of the weather is biased towards when i'm traveling to work and my lunch break because the rest of the time i'm in a room with no room there are no windows which is kind of tragic for an atmospheric scientist (laughs) but yeah yeah, so um, it, it's a really difficult one. We we often will try and give the caveat 
on a sunshine and showers forecast that, you know, brief description of what showers are, a reminder that showers are sort of scattered around and there will be drier periods and there will be drier places. Some of you may get a couple of heavy showers and some people might not get any at all. And it's it's a really difficult one to communicate. So one of the things that I've been uh, thinking about and working on lately in my group, so I I work in a group called the Informatics Lab, and you can see what we're up to at www.informaticslab.co.uk. One of the things we've been thinking about is weather symbols and and what weather symbols mean to people, because, you know, we we abstract this huge expensive weather forecast down into a sun or a sun with some clouds in front of it. And what if that means a different thing to some people than it does to other people, you know, and how much cloud do you need before... That's the correct weather symbol. So one of the ideas we've got is to get people to feed back what they think the weather symbol should be and see how well that matches up to what we're issuing. You don't want to be giving away your, your research, Neil. That's, that's a t- I'm going to steal that now. That's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah, I need to, I need to give uh, apologies to Phil Elson because it was his idea <laughs> and we nicked it. But yeah, so we, we, we develop this stuff quite openly. So if people are interested, then all our code's online. Well, I mean, we're creating, we've got a, um, a, a platform, a web platform now, I guess, where you can gather a lot of information from people and people can feed back instantly. That's got to be useful for yeah, so, for forecasters and for people who are trying to communicate weather is that you can get to the people who are, so who are taking that in. So this is the Weather Observations website, right? Wow. So I think we're just releasing version two of Wow about now, aren't we? So this is going to be much richer. It can You can upload observations of the weather from web cameras and, and this kind of thing. And, and there's a really interesting future and taking these i think we sort of refer to them the buzzword now is internet of things right all these distributed measurements unusual measurements of the weather and how much can we you know take measurements of the weather from photographs of the sky rather than precise measurements and that kind of thing so lately at the met office we've we've changed the way that we communicate about storms in particular so people at home might have heard that we've um We've got a scheme now of letting people help name the storms. So tell us a bit about, you know, why we've done that and how it works and how people can get involved. Yeah, well, earlier on, we were talking about um, the point of forecasts and warnings in particular is for people to take some kind of action. And so it was decided in a joint venture between the Met Office and Met Aaron last year that we would have a a pilot, a trial of the naming of storms. We got the names by um, asking people to to tweet suggestions. Um, And then, again, between the Met Office and and Met Aaron, the the final 26, no, fewer than 26, isn't it? Because not all letters have a name, but Mm. um, a number anyway were, were decided on. And they alternate between male and female um, in a sim- very similar way to the U.S. Hurricane Naming Convention. Do you know how many people submitted in a teacup as a name? No, I don't know. I was oh, hoping something. You've got to be careful of the, uh, the the boaty McBoatface problem. Yeah, exactly. You've got to be a bit careful about that. So I'm, I'm guessing we we told everybody, hey, we're going to decide this at the end of the day. <laughs> this isn't a public vote, people. I, I suggested loads of names at the press office, but none of mine were taken up. In fact, they've asked me to stop submitting. <laughs> so. But it, it appears to have worked, doesn't it, Helen? I would say I, I, I saw a lot of chatter on Twitter about about the names, and, and then maybe they get a hashtag, and that's just one channel. You know, you, you see people. Um, using the names on on the on the TV broadcast um, as well, it seems like that was a success. Yeah, uh, there's going to be an official sort of write up and, and summary uh, at some point during this summer. But yes, anecdotally, it does seem that it was really quite successful, um, and it also seems that people did 
take more notice uh, of the storms. So, so one of the things, that, one of the comments that I saw actually was that uh, somebody was saying, "Well, since the Met Office started naming these storms, there have been an awful lot of them." And 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 was that true this year? I think, it was, uh, or or was it just a perception? Were people more I, aware of I them? I think it was a little bit of both. Actually, mm, I think it sense. was quite a stormy season, but. Um, yeah, people were taking much more notice of it, and they were they were much more out there in the public consciousness. But it's something that the press can latch onto as well, isn't it? And and, and give it a handle, and you know, and, and identify which ones which. Because if you've got a few storms coming in in a row, um, you can you can identify each individual one as they move closer, and, and and be prepared for the next one as well. So were the storms not named at all before? I think they, they were named by the by Germany traditionally or something, weren't they? Much of Europe uh, name their own storms, which can get a little bit confusing mm. because the same low pressure system can be normed by named normed <laughs> by a, a number of different countries. Um, so it, it can get a little bit confusing. But before we started naming our storms, occasionally the press would pick up on something. For example, St Jude's Day storm, yeah. which was named by the press. I remember Cyclone Freetelm as well got sort of picked up. That was one that hit the west of Scotland and was yeah. was given the name by the local community of Hurricane Bobag, yeah. Yeah. which I'm allowed to say because it's in dialect, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> there's, there's even a Wikipedia article about it now. I can, I can say I flew through that on the research really? aircraft. Yeah, we, we were trying to get down to 200 foot, but uh, we realised the wave height was about 70 foot. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I can say it was, it was very well named by the Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> So it's interesting as well. I, I find that I mean the the, the TV broadcasts used to have um, all the isobars and and the fronts on and everything. And of course, we moved away from that. We just have the the rain bands coming in and, and that sort of thing. And I remember there was in the press or uh, certainly in the in the public eye, there was a bit of a kerfuffle about that. That people felt they were being shortchanged because they couldn't have the isobars anymore. And yet we still have them on the country file forecasts. You know, so yeah. and you think is that because the country file forecast is a bit more of a seen as a bit more of a technical forecast? Do you think? And I think quite possibly. Yes. I mean, country file forecast is is of course aimed at farmers and farmers because they're they're in the outdoors all the time tend to have a really good knowledge of meteorology as do people like sailors mm. um, and, and people who you know really rely on the weather and the weather forecast so yes in some ways it is seen as a bit more of a technical forecast and also you know we have that that continual prob- problem of uh, just being so limited for time on the mm. TV and radio broadcasts, you've got to squeeze such a large amount into such a small amount of time, and you have to be really picky then about what you do and well, do. Well, I have heard people complain that why why do we give the wind speed and direction out in forecasts? Because hardly anybody sails to work, and it's very difficult to you know to pitch exactly what information to I, give out I guess to people. You could argue it does give you a feel for the type of weather you're going to get. You know, southwesterly kind of weather system you can pretty much guarantee is going to be relatively warm and relatively wet compared to a northerly one but yeah it's a fair point though isn't it you don't actually need the weather direction the wind direction as such most of the time i mean from my point of view i'd like to see potential vorticity given out (laughs) as well you know but i mean it's it's you know each to their own you know it's only one i I mean you do have to take 
your audience rather than yourself into into consideration here though i mean we're a bunch of weather geeks right so exactly and that, that yeah that was a, yeah it was kind of you know the point i was trying to make <laughs> is that i just want all the information you but know. it's hard to see it's also difficult to see if you're a weather geek how somebody could not be a weather geek and how they could not know about isobars i just stuff, think so. what would my mum want to know you know when can she put the washing out that's all she really uh, wants to test. know yeah <laughs> we talk about that all the time in communication of science so I've got two other areas that I think we, we, we need to uh, um, just chat about briefly. Another group of people, I mean, we have the military, which we'll come to in a minute, that we, we do forecast for. But more importantly, supermarkets, when do they get the ice cream in? You know, and this is something else that we do. So we can do sort of slightly longer term forecasts and, and advise them as well. I mean, I don't know if any of you guys are involved in that at so all. I used to work in... Um I used to work in um, the seasonal and decadal group. So this was doing research into how we can get some skill. So we call the forecast precision skill at forecasting on sort of the monthly to yearly timescale. And obviously, the further you go into the future, the more uncertain it gets. And it's not useful for planning your summer holiday or, dare I say, whether you're going to have a barbecue this summer. But what it is useful for, um, what it is useful for is the kind of things where you can hedge your bets, you know. So things like investing in energy futures or, you know, investing in your sort of strategy for stocking your supermarket for the winter and that kind of thing. So this, I wanted, I wondered if we come to this because I, I, I wanted to talk about the sort of cost. This is exactly the cost of a wrong forecast mm. and why we don't do something called a Texas bullseye. Have you heard of a Texas no. bullseye or a, a Texas sharpshooter? Well, that's when, that's when you just uh, issue any old forecast, right? Or, and you just keep going. Okay. And there are some people who do this. Uh, and then, uh, it's wrong and it's wrong. It's wrong. It's nobody notices. Nobody notices. But when you get it right, and, you know, suddenly everybody notices that you forecast a weird thing and got it right. So, the, I mean, I guess the reason we don't do that, well... Well, because it's got a cost associated with yeah. it. So if you if you get your supermarket to stock on ice cream because it's going to be warm and then it doesn't, then there's an associated cost, right? So you have to get it right. So one of the best, um, what's the word, validations for anthropogenic climate change, it seems to me, is the reaction of the reinsurance industries, right? Because these guys are literally betting their profits on whether it's happening or not. Yeah. Right. And it yeah. seems like they're, they're all, betting on it happening. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like if all else fails, these guys are, are think they're going to be making more profit by by working under the assumption it's happening. Anyway, the, the Texas, before we get off it, the Texas sharpshooter thing is is you take a machine gun and spray the side of a barn with bullets and then you, you go up and you draw the target on afterwards and say, hey, hey, look at this clump here. I, I hit all of these right in the middle of the target. So that's... Anyway, we can come back to that another time maybe. That's quite... That's yeah, we should, do, we should do an episode on validation sometime because that is hard. hard. It's also something that we spend a lot of effort doing at the Met Office. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I speak to people in the pub and I, and I wonder if we, you know, we should talk about this part of it. You know, we, we, we measure very precisely, or at least we try to measure very precisely how well we do these forecasts. And the great thing about weather forecasts is you can see pretty much instantly or, you know, within a day or so whether you were wrong. So yeah. uh, that's a bit harder with the climate stuff, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, we're kind of on it on the weather, I think. I'm following on from shooting barns. There's the military. <laughs> we also do uh, forecasts for the military as well. That's a good segue. Wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, especially, well, the RAF and, and the Army, we do all the forecasts for them. So wherever you find uh, the British military, uh, wherever they are in the world, you'll find a group of Met Office people. We have our own group of forecasters who go out with them and, and do 
specific forecast the, event. Uh, the mobile M- met unit, the MMU, MMU, the MMU. They go out and they're, you know, they're all equipped with helmets and camo gear and all that sorts of thing, and they, they sit out on the front line and do forecasts for them. You know, But the Navy pretty much take care of themselves, but they, they do come down here to uh, Met HQ for, for uh That's sort of ironic, training. isn't it, given that we started as you know something very closely connected to the Navy? Yeah, yeah, but... Um, but it's, that's the, just the situation as yeah, it is yeah. at the moment. But um, but certainly with the military, I mean, even 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 the army when they're firing guns, their shells are going up to twenty kilometres into the atmosphere, and they need to know wind speed and direction all the way up through that parabola, you know. So, uh, and just one little interesting fact I remember from when I used to work on Salisbury Plain, we used to give all the temperatures out to the military in Kelvin because <laughs> their early computers couldn't handle negative numbers, and if you've got a negative number in Kelvin, you're in serious. Trouble. <laughs> we should um, find out about uh, uh, Helen's broadcast career as well. I'd be interested to hear about um, about uh, the, the constraints and the, and the difficulty of getting message out to the public and, and what you have to do with a TV broadcast that might be different from what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, um, I've done quite a lot of both TV and radio and there's obviously a lot of overlap but there are some quite big differences as well and the, one of the big difficulties of radio broadcasting is of course you haven't got any pictures to go alongside so you're having to sort of paint those pictures with your words um at the same time as conveying the the scientific message as well so that can be quite tricky on the other hand you you tend to have a little bit more flexibility um and often a little bit more time as well so, so that can be, help uh, would they be region, regional broadcasts or are they national ones or? I quite enjoy the Radio 4 ones in the morning and today does everybody listen to this do you, oh, today oh, it's a single line increasingly showery or something <laughs> like that <laughs> that's actually what, one of my jobs is to write that oh, really? summary for Radio 4 where you've got um, a word count and it's the whole UK what is the word count um, then? do you know oh, it's asking, not very much I think, okay. I think it's 100 words split into two sections and one of them has to be between 40 and 60 words, and then the other one has to match up to keep it below the 100. So it's very specific. And then presumably the presenters get to digest that. As well, yeah. Well, that's the other thing. When you're writing scripts for radio in particular, they're often going to be, you have to bear in mind that they're going to be read by probably a non-meteorologist and um, that they're, they're... probably not going to have been read in advance of just reading out Mm. it's what we call a rip and read um and that they might well start editing it themselves so you have to be aware of that when when you're writing these sorts of scripts and make them as succinct but as accurate as possible and that that's a real skill and then with the tv side of things yes you've got the the bonus of having the pictures beside you um of course there are many other things going on in a tv studio which can be quite distracting Mm. so first of all it's often live you've probably got a director and possibly a whole gallery full of people talking in your um earpiece which you have to be able to filter out yet at the same time you have to be uh aware of when they're speaking to you and particularly giving you your count so you've had to do that have you you've had to present live with you know because you hear these stories right with people like the director speaking in Mm. your ear at the same time is it annoying 
it's um, it, it can be incredibly <laughs> distracting, yeah. particularly if something's gone wrong on air just before you. <laughs> And then the director's going a bit crazy <laughs> and they, they can be quite sweary I'm types. Sure yeah, and quite loud. So you have to filter that out but but still be listening out for your for your counts down at the end of the I suppose of the worst time. thing you can hear is Phil, Phil. <laughs> that can be scary and that, that has happened, yeah. <laughs> I, d- I did notice that the listeners, you know, eagle-eared listeners may may have heard some some banging in the background because we've got some construction going on. And you didn't notice, Helen. I, all I could hear was the banging earlier and, and you, d- you didn't notice it at all. So I, I wonder if that's part of your training. Yeah, that, I think you're probably right. I was, I was focused in on doing this and I'd filtered everything else out. <laughs> But there's a uh, there's a lot of weather to get in. in. How, how long's your would be an average sort of TV broadcast? Anywhere between about thirty five seconds, which is a real push, <laughs> to four and a half minutes, which is equally challenging from from the other point of view. So having to fill a long period of time, especially when you're not prepared for it because something has happened and you'll notice that they they nearly always put the weather at the end of a news program um, and that's for for a number of reasons but particularly because we sort of act as the buffer at the end so a, a, a 30 minute live news program uh, they do pretty well at sticking to time but you're never going to be able to stick to the absolute second because there's live interviews there's outside broadcasts there's so much else going on so the weather is there to absorb or give back I didn't know that how long would you get how, how much notice would you get that maybe you had to do an extra 10 seconds or something it, it can be very none. very little it can <laughs> be none yeah so what what they will do is they'll give you a, an estimated duration which you plan for but you have to be able to contract that time if you need to or, or extend it. So, so yeah. one, of, one of the things I feel like might have changed with the way weather forecasts are delivered lately is that sometimes they seem to go more into the science of what's behind things. You know, So, for instance, the words jet stream occasionally get mentioned in the weather forecast in winter. And so is that a conscious decision to try and change the way the forecast is delivered to people? We're always looking for feedback. Um, and we've got a, a large group of people in the Met Office whose job is just that, to, to get feedback from the public and other users of so, the So how can forecast. the public give feedback then, the listeners? That's an interesting question. Sometimes it's done um, by sort of those, those pop-ups that you get when, when you use the website and will you fill in this quick survey. Um, if you had something specific you want to say, you could certainly email into the Met Office for give feedback that way. And sometimes um, people will actually go out on the streets, if you like, and, right. and actually ask people. Something that uh, the retail companies are particularly interested in, but so are the public, is uh, the feel of the weather and particularly in comparison with either the sort of climatological norm or more particularly in comparison with just recent recent days and weeks. So if we've had a long, hot, dry spell and then suddenly we're going to get the deluge and temperatures are going to plummet, then that's very relevant. And actually, um, it might be that those sorts of temperatures are about average for the time mm. of year, but because it will be such a shock to the system in comparison with recent days. So retail companies are interested in that because the public are interested in that because that's how you sort of go about your day-to-day life. Yeah, so this feels like it's going to be part of the future of weather forecasting, really. Is this sort of how we 
convert from the new numbers of the weather forecast into what it means for people. And there's no way to really sort of model that, which is our, our first inclination as atmospheric scientists. Really, we've got to measure what this effect is and, and try and kind of calibrate for it. And, and we've been doing a bit of work looking at um, new ways of communicating the weather forecast. So actually, we, we had this idea that maybe in a lot of ways, people don't care about the weather, right? And let me just explain <laughs> that for a second. So actually, I, I don't want to know if it's going to rain at the weekend just because I want to know if it's going to rain. I want to make a decision and I, and I want to use that information to, to influence my decision, like should I have a barbecue at the weekend? So some of the work that we've been exper experimenting with in my group is whether we can let people ask these questions directly. So we've got a prototype of, of asking our a sort of artificial intelligence bot these questions directly and it's uh, using the weather forecast to give you recommendations. So you never know, like in 10 or 20 years time, maybe you'll be getting a digested version of the weather forecast that means something for you and for the decisions you want to make rather than the weather forecast as we have it today. So you're making uh, decisions, I mean, going back to the commercial uh, uh, example that we had there, they're kind of stocking, I guess they're stocking timescales are getting shorter and shorter, right? So they're getting, um, you know, you can get clothes in quicker, for example, if you're um, uh, if, if you're uh, looking at seasonal changes or whatever. If you're looking at changes from the last few days, maybe we'll contract to the point where you can, it'll take you a few days to get some jumpers in, I don't know. But also using the same systems for 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 personal use, essentially, mm. for um, for the public. That would be great. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's just about brought us to the end of our mini-series on how weather forecasts are made. So hopefully that's given you guys at home a much better idea of, of all the different things and how much work goes into communicating the weather forecast to, well, to people like you and, and all the other people we've been talking about. If you've got any feedback or any questions about what we've been doing, then please get in contact. So you can tweet us at our new Twitter handle of at, <laughs> at, at MW underscore podcast. You can, uh, you can also get in contact with me at, at Neil H. Robinson and Doug. At Doug McNeil. Um, and also leave us some reviews on iTunes. And oh, yeah, you can also tweet Helen, right? You're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Helen underscore weather. Jeff, are you on Twitter? I am. I'm Jeff N. Brown. Brilliant. So we'd love some questions or, or just feedback. And like I say, leave us feedback on iTunes as well. That'd be fantastic. So next time, guys, I think we're going to try and move on to a different subject. We're going to be potentially having a look at weather in culture, right? So weather in music and films and that kind of thing. So join us next time. Uh, yeah, when we try for something a bit different. Sounds good. All right. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.